Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Sarah Murdoch, and I beat the often path by not having imposter syndrome. I'm actually like ridiculously not afraid of, of anything, probably because I know my own fallibility and I know I'm kind of an idiot and I'm fine with that. And I just do the best that I can with the time that I'm given. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Murdoch. Now, she's made it her life's mission to bring diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging into companies and organizations around the world. She works with executives and organizations to either proactively create a better, more sustainable workplace or to bounce back from PR disasters and rebuild in more conscientious ways. In her career, she estimates that she's worked with 10,000 plus people over 20 plus years doing consulting, seminars, training, and sessions for 200 plus people at once. Today, we get philosophical about finding a greater purpose at work and building meaning in an organization, especially in larger organizations. So I'm extremely pleased to introduce Dr. Sarah Murdoch. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Um, I like that you say that you're an idiot because I'm also an idiot, which is very clear for anybody who's listened to a few of these episodes. So this episode will just be two idiots shooting the breeze about nonsense. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if Hold you want to say, hi, mom, now's the time in case your mom will be listening to the <laughs> mind game. I don't up think on my me. mom knows how to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mine doesn't know how to listen to podcasts, so she'll probably it's never like, hear this. Are you still being creative <laughs> out there? Um, anyways, so yeah, yeah. tell everybody a little bit about your personal journey, your career journey. How did you end up where you are and what is unusual about your road to your current career? Thank you. And one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is because you are so obsessed with stories and I just absolutely love that. And I mm. think one of one of the things that that makes me a, a little weird certainly is that I'm I'm way more interested in sort of the story and the path and the process than I am in any particular, you know, outcome. And like, I know it's really cheesy and like kind of cliche to say like, I'm not afraid of things, but it's, it's like, I don't have, I don't remember to be afraid because I'm just so in love with the process that I'm just kind of like in it. And from time to time, I'll like stop and like look down off the proverbial cliff and be like, should I be afraid of this height? Uh, I think I'm good. And just kind of keep going. And that seems to be working for me, at least, you know, in almost four decades of existing. So uh, here we are. Do you have yeah, moments of sheer yeah. terror looking over the edge of the cliff? Do you have moments where you say, my God, what am I doing? Because I do. <laughs> that was really a personal. I mean, oh, my God. Yes. Are you kidding me? That probably makes you a little more normal. I think I, I might be a little abnormal in that way. I um, I just don't take myself very seriously. I take my work really seriously. And I think that helps me. Like I, I don't feel like I have a a possible fall from grace, right? Like I don't, I'm just not that precious, right? Like I'm just one little creature out of 8 billion walking around this like rock tumbling through space, you know, like I, I'm just trying to do the best that I can, you know? <laughs> That's a very healthy attitude. And sometimes I have that attitude, but then sometimes I'm like, why are you trying to make a comedy show about serious things? Like, what are you doing? Anyways, let's get into it. So what is your current career? What do you do for work? What do I do for work? So the what would the kids say these days? I'm a, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging consultant, right? Like that's my day job, if you will. I identify, uh, I guess my, my self-moniker is like I'm an entrepreneur, right? I build projects that I believe are reflective of what executives, companies, and just the general population needs when it comes to like people and culture ethics. Like that's really the overarching objective. You know, like if I see a need, how do I show up and meet that need as best that I can, assuming that in the next season or two, it's going to morph all over again. Right. And there's going to be a slightly different need. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of real time uh, education, learning and development, coaching, launching a cohort model soon, an accelerator program. Um, yeah, I'm a builder. You know, I I vision, I envision things and I work with incredibly brilliant people all over the world. I think I was telling you before, you know, we've got London and Mumbai and, you know, New York certainly and um, you know, somebody in Amsterdam who are looking at somebody um in Ghana who are looking at, et cetera. So 
you know, different perspectives in terms of worldviews, in terms of geographies, in terms of cultures, in terms of areas of expertise, the thing that definitely binds us together is we're like very obsessed with collaboration and we're very obsessed with sort of a, a systems thinking model. Okay. You said a lot of words in there, many of which sounded great. I unfortunately can't remember them all. I want to say diversity, inclusion, equity, and what was the fourth one? Belonging. And belonging. belonging okay. Is the, yeah. That one's so, like the new kid on the block. Yeah. Okay. So to whom do you teach these things and in what context? Great questions. Um, thank you for like reining me in a little bit. Appreciate it. I just um, am so, a hopelessly ignorant soul trying to make sense out of this world. It's working for you. So keep, keep being hopeless. <laughs> um, mostly to executives. We definitely work with sort of larger employee teams as well. It's it's not about like, oh, we're you know too good to work with entry-level employees. It's not that. It's that if we're honest, most companies allocate the vast majority of their learning and development sort of just hours and and uh, like resources to higher up execs. I would actually suggest that more companies should extend that privilege to more folks on their team. Um, but yeah, it usually tends to be sort of, you know, C-suite, boards of directors, sometimes more like, you know, kind of like director managerial level. Um, I will say the one thing that's nice about working with folks kind of at that echelon, if you will, is that they do tend to be like extremely driven like very focused people. So in the time that you have them often, not always, of course, there's exceptions to this, but like oftentimes those folks are very, very like present, uh, you know, really want to get the most out of the time. And that's, you know, rewarding for me and for our team. So. Sure. So describe then the problem. What is the problem, broadly speaking, that you solve? Totally. So it does depend who you're talking to. Um, some folks will have some kind of like, ethical or PR catastrophe, right? There's a there's an acute issue, there's a pain point, and they'll bring in a consultant or a team to help them kind of navigate the stickiness, right? They're like, we don't know what we're doing. We thought we were on the right track. This thing happened. We don't really know how to address it. Um, oftentimes, folks are way more sort of nascent or like undeveloped, you might say, in their kind of people and culture uh, just part of their business than they think they are. And there'll just be like a, a little bit of a rude awakening. You know, it's, um, there's nothing quite like a, a minor catastrophe to like wake people up to, to need to change. You know, it's, it's maybe like having a bit of a health emergency and being like, Oh, perhaps I should start exercising, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. So that, that's fairly common, but I will say these days you get more people who really want to be ethical leaders and more people who ask like, what impact are we having? Like, are we, you know, ethically interacting with our team, with the people who are actually comprising this company, um, as well as, you know, asking like, what's our larger kind of impact out in the world, whether it's through the actual products that they're shipping or whether it's simply, you know, as uh, being a model for other folks in their industry, et cetera. Yep. And before we go into that, you're a doctor. What is your doctorate in? I am a doctor. Um, social impact, which, you know, again, that term doesn't mean that much. It's like, what the hell are we talking about here? My question when I went through all of my research was, how do we help programmatic leaders understand the division between their vision and their outcome? So like the impact to me is, you know, it's very much about like your affect, right? Like, what your actual influence is, what is your gravitational pull, what is the you know footprint that you're leaving? Because as we all know, for better and for worse, intentions are kind of meaningless, right? Like what actually what actually matters is the lived experience of the people who work for you, the lived experience of your consumers. And for that matter, you know, these days I think people are waking up to the fact that lived experience of like larger communities and you know nations and international networks, et cetera, like we're all connected and there's sort of no getting away from, from understanding impact these days. That's so true. You know, in a previous life, I was also a doctor. I was a, a doctor of funk. I prescribed funk to people, but I've been stripped of that title these days. <laughs> that was a many lifetimes ago. Just kidding. I'm we, completely we can unqualified. We with an honorary doctorate of, Please. of uh, oh my God. or something. That would be the <laughs> ultimate crowning achievement of my whole life. An honorary doctorate is the best I can hope for. 
Doctor of Letters of, of or something. Yeah, of grooviness right? would be fantastic. <laughs> I will take that any day. So the word right. ethical, just like the word yes. morality, which is an interesting thing that I've noticed because I have branded myself as an ethical marketer because I believe mm-hmm. as people who are able to amplify stories, I think we have a moral ethical responsibility to amplify the right mm-hmm. kinds of stories. And the obvious cliche mm-hmm. example of what the wrong kinds of stories would be, be like marketing for cigarettes or gambling right. or things that are just demonstrably harmful. And between cigarettes yeah. and, you know, wind turbines, there's this whole spectrum from bad to good. Some things are kind of gray, murky. Some things are more bad than good, but few things are black and white. So what I've noticed is that people tend to have a weird reaction to words like ethical or moral because for so long, organized Mm -hmm. religion has somehow laid claim to these terms, which I don't agree with. I don't think you need to be religious to be moral or ethical. I think it's more about Mm -hmm. the reasons behind why you make a decision. And I also think Mm -hmm. that going back to first principles, morality and ethics are in our own best interest because, you know, why don't we murder somebody? Well, we don't want somebody else to murder us. And if we extend that Mm. principle, the golden rule, if you will, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, I think that Mm. is a foundation for ethics and morality. What do Mm. you consider to be an ethical business operation? Mm -hmm. And what would you consider to be unethical in your line of work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So, the first thing that came to mind while you were speaking is that to me, the sort of do unto others as you would have them do unto you principle is extremely conditional and like extremely transactive. And I'm basically obsessed with leadership. Like that's kind of where my drive to to get into ethics comes from. So I'm like, all right, for me, if I'm going to be the best leader that I possibly can be, how do I do that in a way that is both nurturing to myself. So I'm not like bleeding myself dry, but at the same time, it's about like giving an offering as much as I reasonably can. And so I, I really subscribe to like the whole, you know, servant leadership um, sort of philosophy, if you will. And I think where people maybe get like contracted about ethics is when they think that they're going to have to sacrifice something. And I do not see that. I actually like fundamentally disagree with that principle. Mm. I think that to be a really like bold, shining leader, you are, you're not like play acting at being a good boy or a good girl or a good person, however you want to phrase that. Like you simply are an embodiment of giving and you're like living in an ultimate joy because of that. So I really see it as like a stance. And a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging work that I do is built around allyship. And that's because I don't, again, I don't see it as like being correct politically or like being woke enough or demonstrating this and that. It's like to be an ally, you are embodying somebody who like walks beside the other. Because again, like we're all in this together. Like we're literally all screwing ourselves over. Like I'm screwing myself over if I don't like live in that way. So that's sort of how I orient myself to the work. Mm. And how would you define allyship? I mean, you kind of gave a little bit of a example there, but let's go into that a bit more. What does that mean to you? Yeah, for sure. So I I don't really see it as being about like holding up a particular demographic for the sake of holding up that demographic. Like as somebody who identifies and presents as a white person, if I go out and like find a woman of color to like lift, like that's weird and tokenizing. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing that what to make myself feel better to be like, oh, I'm part of a anti-racism solution or something. Like that's really about me at the end of the day. But if I can ask questions about, you know, what is my program serving? Who is my program serving? What, uh, you know, belief structures or to your point about stories, like what narratives are we holding up or what narratives are we maybe questioning? Like that to me is way more potent than like, I don't know, like I'm a good girl. I, I donated to NAACP. Like, please give me a gold star. You know, and I'm not saying like, don't make a donation. Sure. If you have the means, please make a donation. Like, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's not about like cancel culture and canceling that out. It's saying like, who am I fundamentally like seeing myself as? And then like, how do I 
show up in that in all the little subtle ways on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. I think that's way more powerful than like one big gesture, you know, once a year or something. Yes, I completely agree. That's very similar to what I believe in my own life and demonstrating priorities. And of course, I have long believed that we're all one and that the boundaries that separate us are imaginary and arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody who has traveled extensively will know that. I've lived in a foreign country for eight years where I didn't speak the language. I have known what it was like to be a minority of sorts. And if you travel around, you recognize the connections that we all have. I've traveled crazy places, been to China, been to Australia, I've been to Peru, I've been to um, uh, Costa Rica, I've been all over Europe, I've been in a bunch of places. And every time I travel, I'm struck by the fact that everybody is generally basically the same. Uh, The hospitality Mm -hmm. around the world is always great. People always want to give you food and talk about their local Mm -hmm. dishes and their local drinks. And so I think travel is one of those beautiful things that just broadens your horizons by doing it. And you just start to see those connections. Um, But I do want to kind of touch on something that I just love the phrase of PR catastrophe. (laughs) You said there's a PR, a minor PR catastrophe. (laughs) <laughs> what give us an example obviously not naming names of what a minor sure, pr sure. catastrophe might be in your line of work yeah so a couple things come to mind um one issue is that i find many companies and organizations accidentally put their uh their branding i guess yeah just their pr ahead of what they're actually doing internally and i mean that unfortunately that's most companies I worked with, I would even go so far as to say. Um, So that also means that because there's a disconnect between the presentation and the, again, sort of like embodiment or like who they are as, as an org, it's very easy to sort of let slip that there's a desire to like appear altruistic when maybe that's not actually happening internally. Mm. So it's not so much that, listen, I'm a huge fan of people like tooting their own horns when something's going well. I'm not saying that you shouldn't like lovingly brag about your people or, you know, lift folks up. Like, please like celebrate people. Absolutely. But if you lead with like, hey, market, look how awesome we are. And that's sort of the first step that you take. It's almost inevitable that like eventually you're, you know, what's what's that, um, that old tale about like the emperor's new clothes or whatever, like it's going to become clear that you're just sort of like riding their back on on a donkey. You know what I mean? Um, Right. And in this internet age, everything's transparent more so than ever. You have to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. For sure. And, you know, I can't prove this. This is, this is more just observational than like academic research, but I've, I've noticed, and I've talked to other colleagues who feel similarly that, it almost seems to be worse in like the nonprofit sector or like, you know, social impact organizations where people have decided already, like, I'm a good person, I'm doing good things. Therefore, like, I don't need to learn or grow. And to me, the the issue comes in not, uh, not from like, it's not about being perfect. It's like, if you think you're sort of good to go and you don't have anything to learn, it's almost more inevitable that like you're just going to be blind to all the places that you do need to grow. I didn't phrase that very well, but you probably take what I'm what I'm saying there. Oakley dokley, smokely jokely. This is that weird moment where I have to beg you for something because again, nothing is free. All I'm asking you to do is to subscribe to the show on any podcast platform, to rate it five stars on any podcast platform to share this episode with somebody who might benefit from it, and of course, to share Dr. Sarah Murdoch's story with somebody who might be interested in working with her. So that's all I ask. Share, help me grow this podcast together with you. And now back to the show. By the time this episode airs, it will have been many weeks ago. But as we're talking, my guest today uh, for World Toilet Day, Isabel Medem, she talked about that a lot, about the problems with social entrepreneurship as a whole and the celebratory yeah. nature of putting these social entrepreneurs on a pedestal oftentimes without yeah. really, you know, you have these award shows and these galas, but you're not actually celebrating the cause or really caring about the cause. It's just a yeah. pat on the back. Pat on the back. But how yeah. did you get into this line of work? What was the career path that brought you there? Yeah. So, um, 
as I shared with you a little bit before, I actually started out in the performing arts. This was, I mean, decades ago, right? And I really began uh, with sort of envisioning like a performance work, right? So I, I got very hooked on the process of imagining like an evening length show, for example, and kind of building that up from scratch. So little did I know at the time, I was like already falling in love with entrepreneurship and like falling in love with what does it mean to tell a story that instead of instructing people, you should behave in this way, it's like opening up a narrative and saying like, hey, here are some characters and protagonists and thoughts and questions and theses to like ponder and chew on. Uh, you know, here's what I've created. I hope you like it, you know? And, and um, I think that kind of planted a lot of those seeds for me very, very early on. Um, I did work, you know, quite a bit in community settings. I was doing, you know, intergroup dialogue before I knew what that was called. Um, a great example of, you know, I was quite young at that point in time and it didn't occur to me to like be nervous because I was just sort of so, you know, in love with the work. Um, I noticed a lot, this was uh, in the greater Seattle area at this point in time, I noticed a lot of nimbyism, so not in my backyard with, you know, recent immigrant communities and, you know, folks of sort of lower socioeconomic status. And um, yeah, helped quite a few sort of businesses and, and community leaders kind of work through some of the fear of like, what does it mean to kind of invite in the other? Not that that is a real thing, but you know, like that concept of yes. the other, like xenophobia, essentially. Right. Um, yeah. And that, that really, I wasn't thinking I'm a DEI expert. Like that wasn't going through my head at all. I just really wanted to help people learn to communicate more effectively and learn to like embrace dynamic tension as an opportunity for the community rather than like a thing to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I think I just learned a lot about myself as somebody who uh, maybe appreciates moments of, of productive tension as I think of them and sees them as, you know, real like growth opportunities and real ways for people to actually work through some of what can be superficiality. Yes. Um, you know, it's sort of easy to like shake someone, oh, nice to meet you. And then you go about your day. Whereas actually, if you, if there's like some, something to work through, if there's some tension there, oftentimes that, that can result in like more meaning at the end of the day. So that's a lot of what just sort of hooked me on this type of work. And um, also just gave me a sense that like, hey, I'm pretty good at like emotional labor, for example. And I'm pretty good at holding space for other people's fear and anxiety and um, confusion and whatnot. And that's a lot of the work that I do. It's not like, here, have the correct answer. Now you're fixed. It's like, hey, you seem to be having some confusion about this. Let's like work through that. So true. Have you by chance read the book Nonviolent? Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. I it's actually been a long time, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I you you'll still retain. It's a relatively simple principle, I think. Yeah. what you retain. But yeah. uh, that book I read some years ago, and that was my. Well, it's it's a great introduction to how to communicate with groups of people who apparently disagree. I found that to be very fascinating, yeah. and the idea of needs based communication and. Instead of having an mm. adversarial relationship with two groups, just focusing on needs, the language of needs. What do I need from this? The other group saying, what do I need sure. from this? That was a yeah. very eye-opening book. And if you've listened to the audiobook of it, it's uh, <laughs> very hilarious. It's very gentle, and it's got, like, new-agey guitar in between the chapters. It's very, it, it's exactly the way you would imagine a book like that would be read. Uh, but, but cool, so you felt that you had a knack for this kind of work, how did you begin to turn it into a profession, to your main profession? Yeah, no, totally. Um, I was not looking to get into like advisory or consultancy or anything like that. I really, I fell in love with education. Um, I was, you know, teaching college and, and grad school for a number of years, uh, which was not planned, if I'm completely honest. Like I kept being asked to teach classes because I enjoyed it and I was good at it. And you know, a little, little pat, on, pat on the old back there. Like I would get glowing student reviews. So they were like, let's have her back. So um, during that period of time, I ended up on a project basis, kind of just working with a number of, again, leaders and executives and things like that because of needs that they had, you know, and I, I loved the work and, you know, by and large, I think they really enjoyed working with me partially because as you can tell, I just don't, I don't know, like I, I care but I, I try to come with like a joy and a, um, a curiosity. And I, I think people really respond to that. I think that's, um, 
yeah, like people enjoy working in that way. So that just sort of built momentum, if I'm completely honest. And um, I ended up, you know, then sort of working more formally with a number of, you know, different projects and execs and things like that. Um, you know, I, I worked with a couple different startups for a while, helping them kind of hone in on their visions and their strategies and things. Um, you know, and I've also got a, I think I told you this before too, a, a master's in organizational design. I am, you know, as free form as I am, I'm like really, really good at building, uh, strategic teams, like really good. Um, and that surprised me. Like I always thought operations were kind of dry, like, oh, that's just like a bunch of paperwork and administrative stuff. And uh, no, like it's it's all about finding the right people to like create magical synergy and then like build and uplift the project together and then have this attitude of of like business agility, right? And kind of like changing and morphing and norming and and whatnot as you go. So um, yeah, I seem to to be blessed with sort of the again that sort of visioning free form element and then also that like very operational like very sort of meticulously designed like org structure stuff so yeah an interesting combination of skills for sure no wonder you're so well suited to your work so obviously when you come into an environment anybody who's worked with executives or c-suite people knows that these people often got where they are not without just a little bit of ego involved or perhaps arrogance. So if you come into an organization and you're telling somebody, hey, maybe what you're doing is maybe wrong, (laughs) do you get pushback or how do you deal with that? Do you have people who are very resistant to the kind of change that you bring to an organization? Uh, I do. Um, And there are a number of ways that I triage it. And that is kind of how I think of it. I don't think of it as like, here's a fire. I have to douse it with water. Cause that it kind of ends up feeling like an ego versus ego thing. And that doesn't go anywhere, but there's a little bit of, um, yeah, if, if I'm experiencing a highly resistant moment or even like a combative moment, like some people try to attack a little bit, if they feel defensive, uh, I'm like, how do I triage this energy? That's always my question. And sometimes it is a symptom of the other person's, again, like anxiety, fear, minor or not so minor self-loathing, you know, whatever their own stuff is that they haven't worked out, right? And and I didn't make this up. Like plenty of people way smarter than me have like really documented the fact that uh, most executives on some level are like playing out their own, you know, like psychosocial drama, like in the work setting, right? So So some of it is just like, does this person need a hug? You know what I mean? Like, does this person, maybe they need like a cookie and a nap, you know? And I I mean, I'm being like a little silly in terms of how I I phrase it, obviously, but like, we are all just human creatures. And on some level, yeah, there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, is this chick going to like out me as being like, not as woke or not as this or not as that as I like to think that I am. And certainly as, you know, good essentially as like, I want my team to see me as, and what happens with many people who are, who are acclimated to being told that they're right or to being like positively reinforced, um, is that they think that other people can't see or smell their crap. Right. And that's just not true. Like human beings can feel when they're not sincere, can feel when they're sort of, you know, trying to placate somebody or this or that. And it's not about, it's not about getting it right. It's about just like developing a sort of okayness with like, yeah, my team can absolutely see the things I'm bad at and they're never not going to be able to. It's not because I like haven't become perfect enough. It's just, that's how humans are. So a lot of that work is like helping people just understand that others will be able to see their fallibility, their issues, their mistakes, their what their incongruency, whatever, however you say that word. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. So I find that to be fairly effective and it disarms people too, because they're expecting to be either scolded or instructed. And I rarely do either of those things. Hmm. That makes so much sense. And yeah, of course it's all fundamental. That's the interesting thing. It's like, you can see, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist by any means, but you can see the way a lot of these things are rooted in childhood. Somebody was bullied as a kid and then they just have a vendetta against the world for the rest of their life. And 
even though some of these things are very easy to understand theoretically, it doesn't stop people from doing tremendous harm. And that's one of the great tragedies of the world. You can recognize yeah. at a distance, you can say, oh, that person is a classic example of this. <laughs> Clearly, they were bullied as a kid or their parents didn't love them or something awful happened as a kid. And now they just hate the whole world or they, they mm. take it out on the world and they can rise mm. to power. And maybe they rose to power because of that. And, you know, while I don't know these people uh, personally, that's certainly the vibe that I get from like a Jeff Bezos type. It's like, come on, man. Like, like, can we drop it? Like, you're all, you did it. You won. Let it go. Right. right, right, right. Give back. Yeah. yeah. Give a billion dollars a day to something good. Like you got a yacht the size of a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. Like you won, buddy. Right. Let the right. chip go. Same with like Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Let the chip. All, like, you have the whole island of Hawaii now, like uh, right. an entire island in Hawaii. Let it go. But, you know, we see that it doesn't stop people, unfortunately. So it's it's fascinating that you're able. I mean, now, obviously, the people that you're working with, those are extreme examples, wouldn't be that mm-hmm. far gone. But I that's just one of those classic things in life where it's like you can witness something, you can know why it's happening, but it doesn't mean that that person is harmless. It doesn't mean that you can necessarily fix it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, very, very well put. Um, I think that the one thing that I might kind of add on in terms of how I, you know, negotiate, not just sort of working with executives, but working specifically with like diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging with executives is that um, in my experience, and I have seen not all research, but like quite a bit of research that corroborates this. Um, when it comes to white people specifically, they actually do better talking about race and ethnicity specifically with other white people. And, you know, we can kind of postulate why that may be. Uh, my thinking, and again, sort of some of the research I've seen guesstimates that that's because on either conscious or subconscious level, folks think like, oh, well, I'm not going to be judged. Now that's actually not true. Like if I'm honest, because I'm human and I'm, you know, full of crap all the time too, like I'm oftentimes judging them in my head. Right. But I'm really, really good at my job. And so I don't let them know that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I still sort of hold space for that, like, you know, admonition essentially. So some of what I do is like, give people the opportunity to air their dirty laundry, which frankly, most people are like dying to do. They're like, (laughs) please somebody listen to like how messed up I am. Yeah. Like they want that. And so I've heard things that I personally, like that turn my stomach. I've heard things that make me wildly uncomfortable, but I'm like, okay, I have the choice to either like respond kind of emotionally, or I can hold space for this, not to validate it again, but to kind of help morph it, you know, like, help them work through like, where did that narrative come from? Or like, why do you feel that way? Or like, what do you think you're serving in yourself or in your company by like holding on to that story? Like, what is that even behaving as? So it, it's sort of like, there's like a transmutation going on. Um, yeah. And it, like I said, that's specifically in terms of race and ethnicity. I also have found that in some ways uh, being a, you know, identifying as a woman and, you know, being like female presenting. Um, I also find that oftentimes male executives feel safer talking to a woman. So there's, and, and you know, again, not always, obviously there's exceptions to this, but there, there can be uh, a tendency to feel like, okay, sh- like I don't have to compete with her, you know? And I, I will, I'll like put on several different parts of my personality. You know, if I need to, I'll, puff up my chest and do the, hi, I'm Dr. Murdoch thing. Like I'm capable of doing that. Right. And I do that sometimes at like conferences and things like that, if I need to, but I can also be like very warm and collegial and like, Hey buddy, like we're all in this together, you know, just tell me what's up. And, and I think that that can actually really disarm a lot of uh, male executives, frankly, and like help them feel like, Oh, you know, I don't have to compete with her. She's here to like, not literally hold right. my hand, that would be inappropriate, but like metaphorically hold my hand, you right. know? <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. And one of these themes that has always come up in my own life that I'm very fascinated with, and I've heard it said by many different people, is the idea of groups versus individuals. And again, as somebody who's traveled extensively, I've seldom met an individual in my whole life that I didn't connect with from any culture, any background. 
But George Carlin even talked about, like, I love an individual person. I hate groups of people because groups of people are stupid. They're tribal. They do all sorts of horrible things. When somebody says, I belong to a group, then there's team and like it's us versus them, all of this. But so many individuals are are hospitable when you get to know them. And I think Sasha Baron Cohen, as you know, divisive as his work is, in his latest mm-hmm. Borat, which has some pretty intense moments, he can meet with groups of people that have enormous hatred in their hearts as a group. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. two of the individuals put them up in their house and feed him too, like hateful people. And and it's right. there's this weird, and it's certainly true in America, but I think it's true around mm-hmm. the world where any individual will give you some food or a place to stay or, you know, you can talk even if you mm-hmm. quote unquote disagree about an enormous variety of topics, but then you put them in a group and it's a, it's a totally different thing. And there was a documentary some years ago that I was just really fascinated by. I can't remember what it's called, but there was a woman who uh, she dressed up like a man and she was able to look convincingly like a man and she infiltrated. Do you recall what I'm talking about? It. Hell, it's maybe but like I 10, it. it's no it's awesome you have to see it yeah so she was able to look enough like a man that she convinced a group of people she joined a bowling league she became a man and she had all of these preconceived notions about what men did and who men sure. were and sure. then later she realized but once they sort of accepted me then i saw the other side of what it meant to be a man mm-hmm. and then i saw that within the bowling group they cared about me that they cared that mm-hmm. there was actually a kind of love there but the love was mm-hmm. just shown in a way that I was maybe mm-hmm. not used to but sh- so she had this really crazy epiphany it's an amazing uh, story to mm-hmm. find for anybody out there mm-hmm. but it's just mm-hmm. that that proof that on an individual level when you talk like this there's so much connection that can be done but it's only when we say I am this I am mm-hmm. part of this group and I identify mm-hmm. and that's where things get dangerous that's just my personal belief that I've noticed. You know, that's really interesting. And it reminds me a bit of, um, and unfortunately I'm, I'm blanking on, on the names of the individuals I'm thinking of right now, but you know, case studies where we've seen people who have been part of like the KKK, for example, or other like sworn devotional hate organizations, right. And these people who leave, you know, and they, and they talk about sort of the, the, the difference between like getting absorbed in like the vortex of the group think versus like separating themselves out and having that agency to like ground themselves and and understand what they actually stand for. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge, again, like collaborator, teamwork person, et cetera, but it is really crucial for everybody to like take the space to figure out what they stand for. And actually it's something I'll, I'll mention just because I, I did a training just the other day and folks at the end were asking me like, how do you, how do you navigate like the emotional part of this work? And, you know, I meditate a lot. You know, like I, I have to like come back into myself, right? And that's actually like I literally schedule that out. That's not optional. That's like that's part of my work day. Yeah, that's that's really great. And I noticed mm-hmm. that for myself as well, that when mm-hmm. if you're a critical person, if you have a sense of humor, it's easy to focus on what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong with the world. And it's very easy for me to be extremely disappointed in what I'm seeing all around me. Like Tiger King 2 just came out. I watched the preview and I'm like, oh my God, what reality are we living in that there is a Tiger King 2, that this man is a celebrity, that these people are celebrities? Like, what does that say about our culture that Tiger King is more popular than somebody who's bringing sanitation to, you know, than fundamental global issues. And, you know, so it's 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 just always an interesting intersection for me when I when I see those kinds of things. But, um, Mm. yeah, Mm. I don't know. It's it's it plagues me. But I think that if we focus on the positives or what we like to see, that's a much harder thing to do. And in my own life, I had to make a transition. I did a satire thing for some time where I focused on critique because satire is a means of saying what you don't like in the world. Mm -hmm. But I had to change into asking myself, what would I actually like to see more of, which was a difficult question Mm -hmm. for me. And that was the origins of this podcast and my new mission, if you Mm -hmm. will, is it's easy mm-hmm. for me to criticize Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, all of these people in power. But then I had to ask myself, what do I actually want to see more of? And that's how stories like this happen, conversations like this happen. Yeah. Like, what do I actually yeah. want the world to be like? It's a, it's an interesting switch, but that also came with a, a grounding or a, a reflection 
I did meditate. I don't right. meditate as often as I should, but I think it is very important for people to ask themselves, especially now when all of these external forces dictate our lives, social media algorithms mm -hmm. control our lives. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to be a celebrity. Everybody wants to be an influencer. Who is mm -hmm. asking what else? Who is asking right. what else do they stand for? Yes, I stand right. for TikTok followers. Yes, I stand for easy money. But like, what else? Do you just want to die with a million followers? Is that it? If you had that and right. a billion dollars, are you happy? Because there's countless right. examples of people who aren't happy who achieved all of those things and who die miserable. Yeah. So yeah. what else yeah, do you sure. believe in and why do you believe in it is such a powerful question that I feel not many yeah. people are asking. I mean, gosh, I love all of that. I think that's part of why you and I are so aligned, even if we have like slightly different, you know, skills and and sort of areas of expertise is one of the main things that we work on is like when we help execs create better strategy, we're not like, great, how do we solve your problem this afternoon? I mean, sure, of course, there's a time and a place for that, particularly if it's an acute problem. We're like, how do we make you successful next week, next year, and a hundred years from now? Like, we're really thinking like, what's the sort of framework of agility, yet just enough structure, just enough guideposts, just enough of a framework where you have tools, but you're also able to like slalom, you know, as, as uh, the, the terrain inevitably shifts because there will be whether, you know, hopefully knock on wood, not like another COVID COVID, but there's going to be something like I use that metaphorically, like another COVID, you know, like it's going to happen. And we, we never know when, and we never know what, and, you know, if, if one of our tasks as a human, I suppose, is to be present enough to, to ask those questions of like, what is the actual goal here? Like, are we really that obsessed with the KPI of like X number more followers or yeah, like, is it only about the numbers? And, and if so, like, are those a symptom of something else? Like usually there's, if you trace back the, the why, the why, the why, the why, you know, some of those methodologies that are like, just keep asking why, you know, just keep asking why. Um, you'll find you'll find the actual desire, right? And to me, like if I'm hearing you correctly, that's part of what you're talking about. Like, yes, it's easy to critique, and that's why I fled the academy. If I'm totally honest, you know, and, and much love to all of my academic friends and colleagues. I, I love them passionately and dearly, right? But it's like I'm done critiquing for the sake of critiquing. Like, what do we desire, and what are we moving toward? What do we stand for? What are we? you know, full-throated and open-hearted, like building together, that to me is always going to be the better strategy than like, did we get 10% growth this quarter? Right. You know, it's like, okay, like I'm literally. Star. And then you right. end up as like, Facebook. <laughs> then you end up as Facebook yeah. where growth was literally the meta, only meta, meta, meta okay. right? Where that's the only <laughs> metric that was ever a factor. And who cares if hate, yeah. who cares how we get there? But it's funny you mentioned right. about academia because I had the exact same thing. Now, I went to a liberal arts college, mm -hmm. a prestigious liberal arts college, and I studied English literature and film. And mm -hmm. I was struck pretty early on in my studies that the professors were very mm -hmm. smart, but I didn't feel that mm -hmm. they were wise. And they were certainly mm -hmm. smarter than me, but they didn't they mm -hmm. had no core wisdom. There wasn't the why in terms of what they were doing. And it's like, you know, mm -hmm. Edgar Allan Poe wrote this essay and here is, uh, you know, Jacques Lacan or Jacques Derrida, a, a critique of the essay that is longer than the essay itself, mind you. You know, it's like a here's a three page essay and a 10 page critique. And then you have right, right, somebody right. else saying Jacques Derrida completely missed the point. And here's a 15 page essay about why his critique of the work of art is wrong. You have a critique on a critique totally. on a critique. Same with like Shakespeare critique on a critique 100%. on a critique. And I'm like, you know who I love? Totally. I love Shakespeare. I love the guy who wrote these plays. I don't like the person who critiqued the critique of a critique of these plays. <laughs> and you can get so caught up in that world where you 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 yeah. say, what is the purpose of this? And it's like Shakespeare entertained a lot of people. Yeah. He brought stories yeah. to a lot of people. You're just sitting in a cave talking about it. And I've always felt that. And that was kind of in my mind when I flipped that switch on academia and I uh -huh. said, this is not for me. I need to go into right. the reality of building something, of creating something, of reaching people directly in some means. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, again, that comes down to what do you want to see in the world? What do you totally. want to make? And I've always had more respect for those people who build things because it's scary to build things. It's scary sure. to create something. It's much easier to tear sure. down as they say, than it is to try to come up with a play or a poem or a song yeah. or a yeah. comedy routine 
that has yeah, an effect. Totally. And you know what? And again, this is just my opinion, but I would say that that you're you're very correct in terms of the world of business too. You know, like we've seen a bajillion case studies where you know, some company makes, you know, makes a name for themselves and money and this and that off of like XYZ product. And then they just like ride that product till the end of time. And then, you know, 25 years later when they're going out of business and, and uh, like flailing around wildly, they don't, they're like confused about how they got there. And I'm like, yeah, that's because you're doing the same, th- you know, you're looking back on the the original creation and trying to like milk it past where, you know, it past where it wants to be milked. That's a weird way of phrasing that, but <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's like, I'm not saying forget the past. That's not what I mean, but it's like, honor the past, celebrate the past, be excited about the past and harness that excitement and that energy towards innovation, towards doing even better. And I, I think where, um, you know, where we really see leaders succeeding are people who, again, maybe don't take themselves super, super seriously. They're able to let go of some of that ego that you were referencing earlier, but they're like really committed to the innovation process. And they're like so stoked to see where the idea can go or like how the program can get better. And then, you know, somebody like you comes in with marketing or somebody like me comes in with people in culture programming and we're able to, to like invite them into forming something even better. And like that to me is total leadership, right? Like it's, it's always about just constant improvement, constant improvement. And that's that's what we see with charismatic leaders of the past, you know, Walt Disney or Steve Jobs, these charismatic leaders. There's a danger of people celebrating the past so much that they forget how the person that they're celebrating was originally found or what their ideas were. You know, these people got yeah. where they were by innovating, by challenging the status quo, not by <laughs> holding on to some mythical vision of a past utopian society or past utopian business or whatever. Instead, right. it was a constant challenging of a constant questioning of how do we do things? Why do we do things? What are we doing? I do think yeah. that that is a very big danger in any organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's, it's, it sounds very philosophical because I, I suppose I sort of discuss it, you know, high level like this when we're not getting into nitty gritty you know, details because I never want to disclose too much, right? If I'm totally honest, but um, <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, that happens over a glass of wine, not in public, oh, yeah, you right, know, right, right. I'm like, <laughs> um, but, but I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like there, there has to be, there has to be a love again of innovation or people will get stuck. Like there has to be a sense like always, it's not about, it's not about uh, being dissatisfied, but there is like a real sense that things will, inevit- it's almost inevitable. Things will inevitably improve if we show up and we're present. And like, I don't know, I do find that mindset. It's so beautiful when I find it in companies, but I do find it to be relatively rare, actually. And I suppose that's why I have great job security. Right. Exactly. That's <laughs> what you're here for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I don't know if that actually answered your question. No, it, it does. I mean, we're just musing on a whole mess of philosophical things, but hopefully yeah. the listener will be able yeah. to piece some of it together. <laughs> or they won't, and who cares? But anyways... Um, but I, we're approaching the end of our time together here. So a couple of rapid mm. fire questions. Uh, first mm. of all, how fulfilled are you scale of one to 10 with your work? Mm. Which, wait, which side of the scale is which? 10 is most sure. fulfilled. Okay. Okay. Um, 10 is I'd I wake up nine. every morning, birds are singing, I throw the covers off. I can't <laughs> wait to skip to work like the, the boss from Jerry Maguire. Today is another okay, great okay. day. When one is, <laughs> I hate my life. I hate my life. Okay. Uh, no, I would. I would say nine. I love what I do, but I. I wish that uh, I could get in a room with people a little bit more often. So hopefully, you know, post, post, post COVID, that will happen. Okay. And another rapid fire question. A uh, piece, something counterintuitive, something that you believe mm. that nobody else believes, or a counterintuitive thing that you followed that helped you, that was against mm. the grain. Um, embodiment is a huge part of cerebral work. Um, I don't care how somebody does that. You know, I mentioned meditation for myself, but there has to be some sort of like visceral integration 
Or again, you get people who are like totally bifurcated. There's like one thing happening here and another thing happening here and it doesn't go well. Explain that. I need you to expand on that. What is embodiment <laughs> in your mind? That's beautiful, but um, we can't end there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, totally fair. Um, so in my opinion, learning doesn't really happen through like words or concepts, which is hilarious. Cause again, it's like, I'm practically a professional philosopher. Right. But it's like, in order to really, really learn, there's an immersive process and it happens like in our tissues. It's, it's also, it's like, it's, you know, new uh, synapses forming and firing, right. There's like actual changes in our physiology. Like we're, we're literally like developing new cells and uh, like different hormones are coursing through our veins um, it's one of the reasons why I totally agree with you. Like travel is one of the best ways to learn. You cannot read about what it's like to be in Beijing and like have the experience as an American of like being, yeah, exactly. You're like nodding, I'm you know, shaking my head violently for our <laughs> listeners. Like, uh-uh. Right. Right. Totally. And, and like the same thing happens with, you know, diversification of teams. It's like, we're, this is not an intellectual exercise. It's like, it's actually a different visceral experience to work with people who don't have the same worldview or lived experience as you. Like you will innovate differently. It's going to happen. I absolutely guarantee it. it it's like, you couldn't resist it if you tried, not that you would want to. So learning is absolutely about integrating into like physiology, into the body, into you know, like the the senses, if you will. That's a very awesome thought. And I completely agree with all of it. I never thought about it, but I completely agree with all of it. That's a great way to wrap it up. There's one thing that I want though, uh, promote yourself real quick. You can have the last Uh word here. So how can people get in touch or find you or support you or learn more about your work? Okay. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, just if you want to like get in touch and uh, read some of my, you know, self-indulgent blog posts, um, that would be www.drdrsarmurdoch.com. That's my name, drsarmurdoch.com. I'm also on Instagram at the same exact thing. That started out as an experiment, if I'm totally honest. Um, And I'm now like, hey, this is kind of fun. I should, you know, actually like try to put some of my stuff out there. So, same thing, uh, Dr. Sarah Murdoch on Insta. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well at S-A-R-A-E-V-A. That's my middle name, Sarah Eva Murdoch. And I love connecting with other humans. So hit me up. Sounds great. I have to say before we wrap this up that your name is mm-hmm. so awesome. It reminds me of like a 90s action movie, you know, like Dr. Sarah Murdoch. Well, it feels like McBain from The Simpsons or something. <laughs> I mean, listen, Daredevil is Matt Murdoch. So oh, I yeah, just maybe figured, that's like, what I was. Yeah, cousins, I was like, there's something you know? in there that I'm yeah. resonating with. That is awesome. Well, yeah. thank you very much, there. I really appreciate you taking the time. And with that, the official podcast is over. Awesome. <laughs> what a fantastic episode that was. I enjoyed our chat. I love getting deep. I love diving into these kinds of topics. I love discussing the why and the how and the who and the what behind why we do things and again my whole show and my premise is about adding meaning and finding things beyond just money finding a greater sense of purpose in our lives and work sometimes that means going it alone but sometimes that means working within existing organizations and i'm so pleased that she's out there doing this and helping people build better structures that are going to serve companies and people for the years to come as always if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes ever Make sure that you rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Share it with somebody at work who needs to hear it. And of course, share Dr. Sarah Murdoch with anybody at your work. If you want to hire her or if you want to bring her in as a consultant, you can find her and support the guest as well. Thank you very much for being a part of the Beat the Often Path podcast. My name is Ross Palmer, and I will see you next Friday.